Welcome to Cryptobiography. I'm your host, Brandon Starr. This is episode 334 of Cryptobiography, and it is the second half of the collected story of the island. And here we go. The morning brought nothing, however. Carton suspected that the people looking on the boat were, in fact, looking for Aaron and had not spotted the boat as they went by. Since he had been lost in a storm, there was a large area that would have to be searched and it was likely that they would not search again. So, for the next few days, until the next market day, he focused on fishing. He hadn't done much with all the extra events, but as the fish would be fresh, he should be able to sell it for a good price. Salted and smoked fish were fine, but a good fresh fish sold for the most. On market day, he only brought Tristan along, and before they headed out, Carden had a talk with him. We cannot say a thing about Aaron, he advised. We cannot mention even that we have a guest in our home or that we found a boat. None of it. I understand, Tristan said. When they arrived at the market, all seemed to be normal. They took their usual places and put out the fish. But hardly any of their fish sold. Looking at the other stalls within view, Cardin saw that his fellow islanders were having trouble selling their fish as well. Tristan, do some scouting, will you? Find out why no one's buying fish today, Carden asked. While Tristan was away, Carden took out his whittling knife and a bit of wood he'd been working on. Usually, market days were too busy to get any whittling done, but not today. He was making a whistle, and as he had started it some time ago, it was finally nearly done. He thought about Aaron and what he had seen the last few weeks since the potentians had come to the area. He thought about John Johnson and his son, whom Kerr had saved. They'd seemed nice enough, but they did leave very quickly after giving their gift. He was making the final adjustments on the whistle and testing it a bit when Tristan returned. Carden noticed that he looked upset. What's going on? Carden asked. The potentians are going on, Tristan replied. They're buying from a couple of stalls where the sellers are potentians. They aren't, it seems they aren't buying from anyone else until those stalls are sold out. They told you this? Now, I heard a family talking. A girl about my age was going to go to an islander stall when her mother stopped her and said, we have to buy from potentians first. Then they went, then they went to one of those stalls. Oh my. Cardin stopped whittling. He thought for a while. Tristan, can you, Tristan continued to look at him, waiting. Son, he said and looked around, but no one was near enough to hear. We have a couple of hours before we go back. I need to find out more. You can watch the stall, can't you? The fresh fish will need new ocean water. Sure, father, Tristan said. Thank you, Carton said. He gave him the whistle. I think it's about finished. I like it, Tristan said, giving a small blow on it. It gave a pleasant note. I'll make sure I'm back before it's time to head home, he told him, as he walked off into town. Carden didn't know the best way to get more information about the potentians. The Johnsons were farmers. They wouldn't be living in town, and unless he got directions, he could be searching for them for weeks. 
But John Johnson had told him about the church they were building on top of the hill. Before Carton made for it, he decided to look at the other stalls. He quickly found the new ones from the Potentians. They were easy to spot, having people around them buying. He looked in. Their fish were nearly gone. He noticed that the fresh fish didn't have enough water. They would be turning. They're going to make their customers sick, Garden thought. Shaking his head, he turned deeper into town. Carden saw the church being built on the tallest hill, as he had been told. As he got close, he could see that it was going up fairly quickly. It was being made of stone, heavily walled. It was already as tall as a house, yet there was no indication they were going to stop building upward any time soon. And it was huge. There were a lot of workers on the walls, even on market day. Carden walked towards one of them, who was getting a drink of water. Hello, Carden called as he approached. Good day, the man replied. Quite a building you're putting up, Carden remarked. Yeah, been doing it a while, the man said. Oh, sure. I'm from the island, haven't had time to check it out before now. Seems like it's going up pretty fast. Yeah, we have lots of workers on it. How many people is it going to hold when it's done? Oh, about 1,400. Carden whistled. That's... That's roughly the population of the whole town, isn't it? Maybe with the island, too? The man nodded. So you're going to have functions with the whole community? Yes. I suppose that will give some people a chance to see what potentianism is all about. What? No. I don't understand, then. Everyone will be a potential before long. So the elders decided that the new church would have to hold the whole community. I see... What of those who decide not to become potentians? The man looked uncomfortable and just shrugged. There was a long pause. I've got to get back to work, he said, and turned to walk back to the half-built church. Carden realized neither of them had introduced themselves. It wasn't his usual way, but somehow he couldn't bring himself to do it to the man's retreating back. So he turned and walked back down the hill to the market. When he approached his stall, he was surprised to see that there were a number of customers lined up to buy fish from Tristan. Tristan looked over him and smiled. Hey, father, we finally have some customers. So I see, Carden said enthusiastically. They went through the small line quite quickly, however, and when they had, they didn't see another customer until they had closed up the stall and headed home. Even with that burst of business, they hadn't sold most of their stock. This had only happened once or twice to Carden. They would take back everything. The salted and the smoked fish would keep, or they could eat. The fresh fish would have to be taken care of right away. On the way back, Carden asked Tristan about the people who had bought at the end. Eh, they all came at once, Tristan said. I think they were waiting for the potential stalls to close so they could buy from us with a clear conscience. I think, said Carden that we should talk some more with Aaron about potentianism when we get back. That night, after starting the salting of the unsold fish, Carden asked Aaron to tell him his story. Aaron was mending. He still wasn't strong, but the few days that had passed had seen him at least be able to walk some and put some color back in his face. The berry bushes on the island were starting to bear fruit, and the children were stuffing Aaron full of raspberries and blackberries. They were also still finding cherries, though it was late in their season, and also loved by birds, 
but gave some of them to him as well. Many others went into their bellies or went to Gwyn, who started making jams and drying them. That night, after their meal of fish and tubers, but after care was sent to bed, Carden asked the older kids to play outside, then broached the subject with Aaron. I learned some upsetting things today at the market. First, the Potentians wouldn't buy from the islanders until the Potentian fish markets were closed. Then I went up to the church on the biggest hill, and it sounds like they expect everyone to be a Potentian before long. Aaron nodded. That's their plan? Yes. How? And what else do you know about them? Everything. Aaron took his time gathering his thoughts before he continued. I'm the son of an elder. As I'm an adult, I was expected to choose a wife and then, once I was a parent, become an elder myself. An elder is a leader of the religion, he said, explaining. There are various levels and duties. My father, Peter Wright, was, is in charge of ensuring devotion. Ensuring devotion? Gwen asked. Yes, it boils down to punishing those who do something outside of the rules. And there are a lot of rules. And what are the punishments? That varies from fines and penitence, meaning working for the church in some way, to death. Death? Cardin exclaimed. Yes, especially for someone like me who leaves the church. That is absolutely not allowed, and death is usually the punishment. Unless you return with all shame acknowledged, you'll be punished, but you'll live. In fact, you'll be used as a warning to others, while being praised as a lost sheep returned to the flock. And you decided to leave the church, Gwen asked. Yes, Aaron said. Carden had the idea that Aaron was building up to something, so he said nothing, but instead got a glass of water from the kitchen. He handed it to Aaron. Need anything else? Aaron shook his head. Thanks. Gwen caught Carden's eye. She looked nervous. He just gave her a small nod, out of Aaron's line of sight. He was nervous, too. Aaron started back up. I was married six years ago. This was well before we came to your town. She was, like me, born to the church, her father, another elder. Mary's mother was much like mine, quiet and reserved, just what the church tells us to be the perfect wife and mother. Mary wasn't like that. She was outspoken, honest, and was willing to argue for her own point of view. I liked her from the moment we met. We were quite young then, only a few years old. As we grew up, I knew that my parents would make a match with the parents of a girl inside the church. Though I could not directly choose, I tried to give hints that Mary would be my choice if I could make it myself. We were good friends, and as good as the church would allow a boy and girl to be. I heard, second-hand, that Mary, when the time approached, Flatalt told her parents, I want Aaron to be my husband. And after we were betrothed, she confirmed that story to me. I can only imagine what her parents thought when she said that. Perhaps she hoped that I, with my quiet demeanor and my parents' rank, and especially my mother's even more quiet nature, would help rein in her wilder side. Aaron laughed a single, humorless laugh. So we were married six years ago. She was eighteen, I twenty. As two children of elders, the wedding was huge, with everyone in the church attending. Inside of a year, Mary had our first child, Thomas. 
Because we are now parents, after another year I was made an elder, if a minor one, and Mary became the wife of an elder. He had been looking at the floor, or off into the distance, as though he could see through the wall. Now he looked over at Cardin and Gwen. Inside our marriage, I think we were much like you. He looked specifically at Cardin. I've been talking with Gwen. I see a team of equals. That cannot be inside the church, however, so publicly I was the head of the family, she my support. I find the open possibilities of marriage here on the island fascinating. I must warn you, however, that my church won't see it as anything but a threat. In any case, as a minor elder, I was given a simple area to oversee, the religious calendar. I would make sure that everyone knew the upcoming holy days and what actions were to be taken to observe them. I had no say in it. I was simply passing along the information given by the Holy Writ. But I was proud. Mary was faster than I was to see the problems. I had grown up in a family where my father doled out the punishments, and so I had become numb to them. But Mary, her father's scope was watching the money. So she had learned over years that the money taken in by the church was being given not for general church uses, but to the elders, and really only the most powerful, including both her father and mine. I had been naive. I knew our family had been well off, but he was a store owner, and I simply thought he earned his money exclusively through the store. I saw him tithe. I did not see the money come back to him. She also saw the punishments given by my father and other elders, and was sickened by them. She had come to this realization even before we were married. I don't know why she chose me to marry. If I had been unbending like my father, it would have been painful for her. But she saw something in me. She knew, even before I did, that something about the church didn't sit right with me, and that I would want, as she already did, to leave it. She was clever, my Mary. It took years for her to make me see... She knew that just bringing the idea of leaving the church, that they were wrong, terribly wrong, would be unthinkable to me, raised as I was. So she supported me whenever I said something even slightly against the teachings, and questioned me, always softly, when I disagreed with the church when its stance was clearly unethical. I came to the conclusion, so I thought, on my own, but when I told her one night in our bed, crying that I didn't think I could be Opetention any longer, I found that she was not shocked, but instead welcoming me, being already in that same place. I only put it all together later, how it had really happened. We still only had Thomas. Mary, sadly, after her first birth, started having miscarriages. As women were expected to have large families, we allowed this information to slip out to her family and beyond. The church tends to blame women for miscarriages, claiming it is their weakness causing them. But it still meant that we were trying to have children, and that protected her some. The better of two bad choices. Aaron stopped here for a while, and Cardin and Gwen allowed him his time. It was several minutes before he spoke again, and he had drunk most of his water. Thomas was a wonderful child, looking mostly like Mary, with a brown face and soft, wavy brown hair. I used to joke that he got my ears and everything else was from Mary. His ears stuck out a bit, just the way mine do. Thomas was four when the church decided to move to your town. 
where we were before. We were just one church among many. And because of our strict rules, we were disliked by most outsiders. I was at the elder meeting when it was decided to move here. A few people from your town had come to where we were and been converted. They described the situation here, that there were no churches, just people following their own beliefs. The elders knew they could bring many people into the church, for all the usual reasons, support when disaster hits, socializing, and so on. The punishments were downplayed. Everyone would know there's no way out of the church, apostasy being one of the sins punished by death, but at first, with nothing obvious to dissuade them, people would join in droves. And they have. But Mary and I were close to deciding to leave. And that's when it all went wrong. Aaron finished his water. This time Gwen got him another cupful. Mary and I planned our escape carefully. We knew we would only get one chance. We saved up our money, knowing that we would be starting over. It took months. Because publicly we needed to be putting on the face of the loyal believer, we could only do so much so fast. We tried very hard not to seem to be doing anything differently. Because of that, we could only save money slowly. We prepared items for travel late at night. One long night, I even got a boat ready, hidden near the shore but a good distance from town so it would not be stumbled upon in the few weeks before we used it. Finally. We were ready. Thomas had his fifth birthday. We had it planned for less than two weeks after that event. We chose the date as being the most practical. It was one of the few parts of the calendar with no religious events, even minor ones. No one would expect me to do any special duties, and we hoped they wouldn't come to call for a day or two. Usually the members are quite sociable and visit each other regularly. Because of this, we are also going to feign a short trip to some distant family we had just discovered were in the area, with strong hints that we would try to convert them. Although both Mary and I were close to our families, we decided not to make any special attempt to visit them in the few days before our escape. Partly this was so we couldn't accidentally give away any part of our plans. Partly this was to protect them. When it became known that we hadn't seen them for a few days before leaving, it would be understood that they were not in on our escape. The night before, Mary and I talked over our plans one more time. We were ready for everything but what happened next. Mid-morning, Mary and I were preparing for our leaving, which would happen before noon. Thomas was out playing. There was a knock on the door. When we opened it, six elders of the church were there, with Thomas. Your boy here told my boy something interesting, the most powerful of the elders among them said. His name was Elijah. He said you were going away. Oh, we are, I bluffed. I went with our cover story. We're going to visit some distant relatives of mine I just learned are in the area. That's not how it sounds to us, Elijah said. Okay, I said. I dared not question him. We will send a couple of elders along with your family on your visit, Elijah said. Will they be ready soon? We're leaving in about an hour, I replied. They will, he said. Very well, we shall enjoy the extra company, I said. The two they chose were Noah and Peter, two of the younger elders. Both were chosen for their size and strength. 
both of them I knew well as they were under my father's sphere. The two men would ride on the back of our cart. As the seat had springs on it, the three of us would be far more comfortable than they would be. Though we hardly had a moment or two alone, since other elders were stationed outside our door, I hurriedly made a plan with Mary. We headed out of town. As you may know, about a mile from the town the road splits, we went south, which would be in the general direction of our boat. I heard your relatives live northeast, Noah called from the back of the wagon. This was indeed the rumor we had floated, but I pushed past it. I'm afraid you heard wrong, I said, shrugging. Out of the corner of my eye as I turned to face forward again, I saw them look at each other. They weren't exactly buying it, but they weren't going to call our bluff quite so soon. I waited for an hour. The horses were doing well, and the road ahead was flat and smooth. It was time. I handed the reins to Mary and clambered over the back of the seat. I made as if to look for something while I actually secured a cord to my belt. I grabbed a water skin from the seat beside Mary and offered it to Noah. As he raised it to drink, so that he couldn't see over it, I yelled, Now! Mary twitched the reins, and the horses went from a walk to a trot. At the same time, I put my boot into his chest. The sides of the cart were quite low, not meant to keep passengers. Noah pitched over the side. Peter showed no signs of shock. He immediately wanted to go after me, but the change in speed had rocked him back as well. He struggled for a moment to get his balance. I tried to push him, but he grabbed me. He was significantly stronger than I, but I had a couple of advantages. One was that I had my feet properly under me. He was still sitting down. The other was the cord connecting me to the cart. I could fight knowing I could not fall out. Peter could not. He hit me, hard, and I was briefly dazed, even though he could not put his full weight into a blow from his position. But I stepped back, put my hand on the back of the seat, and steadied myself. Peter, meanwhile, was trying to get into some sort of crouch. He was expecting me to try to kick him over the side as I had done with Noah. One hand was on the side of the wagon, the other was protecting his chest and head from such an attack. Instead, I aimed a kick hard on his knee. I could feel the kneecaps slide sideways and heard a pop. Peter yelled in pain. I then kicked again. Distracted though he was, he still grabbed my leg as he started to topple backwards. But then the cord attached to me went went taut, and the sudden jerk made him slip. Like a felled tree, he slowly went over backwards until he flopped out of the cart. He wasn't badly hurt by the fall, but I could see by his attempts to stand up that his knee was hurting him. Further behind, Noah lay crumpled on the road. Mary laid her hand up off of Thomas. Apparently she had held him down, partly to keep him safely on the seat when she sped up, and partly to keep him from seeing the fight. But now he popped up. Aren't we going to stop for Noah and Peter? Thomas asked. No, son, I said. I unclipped the cord from my belt and climbed back into the, climbed back into the seat. They're trying to harm us. We have to leave them behind. They aren't badly hurt. And someone will come along before long, I imagine, and help them. Okay? Thomas nodded. We have a long way to go, I said to Mary. But we got lucky. They won't be chasing us. Let's slow the horses back down to their walking speed. We have a long way around to go to get back to the boat, to do it safely. The day was sticky with humidity, and there were dark clouds on the horizon. The storm you met me in was coming. Mary and I talked as we drove the horses along. The original plan was, we put everything we had in the boat, let the horses loose, while either leaving the cart hidden off any paths, 
or perhaps even pushing it into the sea. The idea is that the horses would probably make their way back to town, and eventually the empty cart would be found, but we would not. It could be crime, or horrible accident, or who knows what. That, of course, would now have the lie put to it by Peter and Noah. But we decided to follow the plan anyway. Hopefully the cart wouldn't be found immediately, and with real luck, they might think we met an accident and died. But it was not as clean a getaway as we had hoped for. The boat was still a few miles away because we had to take a long path that had no chance of meeting up with any potentials on the road. When we got there, the rains had started. The heavy storm was causing large waves. I had chosen a spot for the boat that was sheltered. We could get the boat out of ways before the waves would really hit. Still, it was going to be dangerous. Mary and I talked it out for a moment. Should we wait for the storm to blow over? We had just decided the wise, that that was the wise course when we heard a shout over the storm. We had no time. I grabbed my one bag, the one with my clothes and our money, and tossed it in the boat. Mary lifted Thomas and put him in as I started to shove the boat towards the water. It moved, but slowly. Mary helped me, and soon we were ankle-deep in water. The boat was almost afloat. The shout we heard was taken up by some others. Looking behind us, I saw some potentials running out of the trees towards us. I assumed they were under orders to take us alive, but I was wrong. The boat was floating. Get in, Mary, I shouted, but there was a splash. Mary had fallen. I gave the boat one more push, then turned to help her. She had a crossbow bolt straight through the back of her head. She was dead, drifting in the shallow water. I could do nothing. I went for the boat, which had moved several strides ahead of me. As I climbed aboard, I saw that the potentials were already running into the water. Thomas was staring, horrified at his mother's corpse. Get down, Thomas, I yelled as I put the oars through their locks. Then I pulled. I pulled hard. The boat was already starting to pitch up and down. Even in the little sheltered area, we were seeing the fury of the storm. I kept pulling, and soon the men stopped. Most of them were around my Mary's body. But as I rowed us further out, it was harder to tell what was happening, especially with the rain pelting down, obscuring as surely as fog. We were already too far away for crossbow bolts though part of me was stunned by Mary's death. The fear in the moment kept me going. The men on the shore were invisible from the rain. I don't know what they did with her body, though I hope they brought her back for burial. Now I'd lost my wife, and my son and I were pitching up and down in heavy seas. I kept pulling. I had no idea which way I was going. I might have even turned around and been moving towards the shore or on a reef. At the height of the storm, the waves towered over us. The boat was lightly loaded and was bobbing like a cork. It felt like the end of the world, like the end of time. There was nothing but the boat and the oars and rain and the sea. And then I came to you. Curtin looked hard at him. Aaron, what about Thomas? Aaron looked at him. His eyes, already red from tears, looked haunted. I lost him. At that height of the storm, with me pulling and not knowing where I was going, we hit an enormous wave. The whole boat flew up, then back down. Thomas, who was holding tight to the forward bench, flopped over. He was in the boat, but had lost his grip. Then, just as we were starting to go down, a second wave from another direction came and smashed the boat again. Even I was lifted off my bench. Thomas flipped over the side. In an instant, he was gone. I lunged forward, 
but there was a blink of an eye before I had started moving. It was too late. I looked over the side and couldn't see him at all. He'd been taken, swallowed by the dark blue of the ocean. My son was gone. I yelled and looked all around for I don't know how long, but it was all in vain. I looked back and saw the oars had gone. I was adrift. Hardly had I noticed that when yet another wave came, and right when I was moving from bench to bench and not in any place to counter it. It was as though the boat reared up and punched me. It had smashed right into my head. I could barely see, barely move, and I knew only that I had lost everything that mattered to me when I fell unconscious. I knew nothing more until you two and your family saved me. But now you know all, and you know why you'll be in danger as soon as they know I'm here. They don't know now, Gwen said. Her voice had a strange gravel to it that Cardin recognizes coming after her crying. And we will do our best to make sure they don't figure it out. We have planning to do, Cardin said. Though we would gladly protect you here in our home forever, the island is too sociable. As soon as someone outside the family heard, it would eventually make its way to the town. I think we have to get you away permanently once you're healed. Aaron nodded and fell back. He put his elbow over his eyes. Cardin, you're probably right, but also... He's only now starting to grieve, Gwen said. We should give him time. Yes, Cardin said. Good night, Aaron. Good night. Gwen took Cardin outside. We have to give him time, she said softly, so Aaron couldn't possibly hear her over the ocean sounds. He just lost his family. When that sinks in, he's going to go through pain he's only starting to imagine. I think he's been avoiding thinking about it until tonight. Yes, Cardin said. Is there anything we can do? I don't think so, love. He's going to have to work through it. Well, perhaps making a plan to escape will help him. Gwen shook his head. I know you like to think of everything as a problem to be solved and moved on from, but some things just need to be felt. Yes, we will plan, and sure, he can help us plan if he wants, but not to escape his feelings. And that was how it was for a few days. Cardin was out on the boat fishing. Gwen was seeing to Aaron's head injury in front of the fireplace, which was slowly getting better, when the back door opened. Duncan stood there. Gwen knew immediately that Duncan decided to give it one last try. He covered it badly. I hadn't seen you or any of the kids about for a while, he said stiffly. I didn't know you had company. Gwen said nothing. Duncan backed out and closed the door. Damn, Gwen said. She hadn't bothered asking Duncan to keep this quiet. The unspoken rule of living on a small island like this, especially one with so many interconnected families, was that information, or gossip, was freely shared. One might ask a spouse to keep something private, but beyond that, it was impossible to expect it of anyone. Are you in trouble? Aaron asked. No, Gwen said, but the whole island will know soon that someone's here. I think it's only a matter of time before the information spreads to town. Are there any pretensions among the islanders yet? No, none I'm aware of, Aaron said. They are planning on doing missionary trips to the island soon, though. Either way, our time just got shorter, Gwen said. 
The next formal island meeting was in two days. This was not a meeting after a feast, but one that only happened three times per year. Aaron was well on the way to recovery, physically. However, as Gwen had suggested, Carden noticed that Aaron was now more able to brood on what had happened to his family. Carden and Gwen asked the children to take care of Aaron, who had spent that morning doing some simple chores to help out. The children were thrilled. They walked there, the sun just about gone down hand in hand for as much of the way as the paths would allow. They didn't talk, though earlier in their day they had decided what they would tell everyone. The meeting was set up in the usual circle, with the women of the family seated and the men who had come along standing on the outside. Gwen was in the second circle of seats. She was nearly old enough to have one of the inmost circle. The placement was one of respect rather than any sort of actual power or even influence. Carden took a place behind her, near the outer edge of the cleared area. Unlike the feast meetings, these meetings were to air grievances, mostly. News would be shared as well, but this was designed to relieve tensions that inevitably built up on a small island. Carden looked around. Duncan was not present, though both of his partners were. "'Who has something they need to say?' Aoife said. "'I do,' Gwen said. Carden noticed that both of Duncan's partners were paying close attention. "'We have a guest in our home.' Some people may already be aware of this, Gwen said. He was under our protection. He's a potential, and they are after him. I will not tell all of what they have done, but suffice it to say he has my family's sympathies and we wish him to come to no harm. With luck, no one has told anyone off the island about this fact yet. But I'd like to find out. Has anyone had any contact with someone from town, particularly a potential, and mentioned that a stranger from among them is here on the island? Everyone looked around at each other. Carden watched Duncan's partners. They didn't look around. Instead, they looked only at each other. Carden felt a chill crawl up his spine. He slipped away from the meeting and, in what was now increasing dark, sped back towards his home. As he approached his house, he slowed down. He could see through the trees that there was a strange boat tied beside his on their small dock. He could hear something like muffled shouts over the waves. They were coming from his house. He started forward again. When he was almost out of the trees, the door popped open. Two men in potential dress were taking Aaron out of the house. He seemed to have been knocked out, his legs dragged behind them. Tristan was yelling from inside at the men to let Aaron go. But soon Cardin saw why his son wasn't already on top of them. A third man was backing out, crossbow leveled. He didn't know how the other two were armed, and he didn't care. He was now running at top speed toward the man aiming at his children. The man heard something at the last moment and started to turn. Carden barreled into him, making sure that his left hand hit the crossbow hard, pushing it far away from his family. His right arm was raised, and he smashed his elbow hard into the man's ear. He went down with them, and they tumbled in the sand just outside the house. The two men carrying Aaron gave a cry. He heard a noise and knew that they must have dropped Aaron and would be after him. The man under him was dazed but not unconscious. Carden started beating him as he pulled his legs up under him so he could get a proper stance before the other two came. Tristan came out of the house. He had a knife in his hand. The two men, he saw, also had knives. He reached behind him and pulled his knife out of its sheath. An islander, and especially a fisherman, was never without a knife though it was rarely raised in anger against another person. 
He took a glance down and saw that the crossbow had indeed gone off, the bolt gone who knew where. Since they take a long time to reload, he thought, at least we have one less weapon to worry about. The two men pulled short, seeing that the islanders were armed. But then the other man rolled away and got up next to them. I didn't hurt him badly then, Carden thought. The third man, too, pulled out a knife. We're taking him, one of the men shouted over the surf. No, Tristan yelled back. He started circling around them. Carden could tell immediately that he was trying to make his way to Aaron. He had no choice. He circled with his son. Leave! Now! Tristan bellowed. Carden had never seen his son quite like this. He had found something inside him, something that had no doubt blossomed during the unusual few weeks they'd been having. He is ours! The same man shouted. Aaron is under our roof and under my family's protection! Carden yelled. Leave our home! The first man stepped sideways, as if to get around them and get Aaron. Tristan and Carden stepped that way, too. The second man stepped forward aggressively, poking his knife at them in a stabbing gesture. No closer! Tristan screamed. The third man, who though not badly injured, had a fresh bruise on the side of his head, stepped forward with the second one. He was also brandishing his knife. Tristan was now right by Aaron, who hadn't moved since being dropped. Carden didn't dare take any time to see if he was all right. Get out of here! Tristan screamed at them. You'll not be stopping us taking our brother out of here, the first man said. The second one stepped forward as if to reach for Aaron. Twiston, Tristan swiped at him, and the man pulled his hand back with a yell. The back of his forearm had a cut on it. The third man then cut at Tristan's face. Tristan put up his arm to block and got a deep cut on the outside of his forearm. Hey! Carden yelled and stabbed at the third man. His knife sank deep into the man's shoulder. He screamed and stumbled sideways away from Carden and Tristan. This isn't worth it, Carden shouted. Get out of here! It wasn't the strongest argument, but the men decided that, with two of them having cuts, it was time to leave. They backed away towards the dock. Carden knelt down and checked on Aaron. He was clearly alive, but that was all he could tell without looking more. Tristan was following the men at a safe distance, possibly wanting them to prevent them stealing or damaging the family boat. The men, however, got into their own boat and left, rowing into the darkness. How did they expect to get back safely in the dark? Carden wondered aloud. Because they expected to have Duncan's help, Tristan snapped. He was with them. You saw him? Carden asked. He had not seen Duncan. I saw him come off the boat with them and wait behind while they went to the house, Tristan said. I suppose that once things got ugly, he decided to skulk away. Traitor. Carden spat. Help me lift Aaron. We need to get him back to the house, see how bad things are. They bashed him pretty good with the hilt of one of their knives, Tristan said, lifting Aaron's legs. He went down hard. They got Aaron back in. Go to the meeting, Morgan, he said to her when she came from the back door, Kier's hand in hers. We could use Gwen's help, and she should know what's going on. And if Aoife wants to come, so much the better. She has a good reputation for healing. Take care with you. And he said as she started to lead Kier out the door. Thank you for protecting your brother. As soon as she left, Carden looked over at Tristan. And Tristan, I accepted, he said. I couldn't be more proud of you. Not only Aaron, but very possibly Morgan and Kier owe you their lives. Add that to your saving me, and you have everyone under, everyone but your mother who's under this roof in your debt. 
Karn looked at Aaron, whose skin was a strange yellow. Another injury so soon after the first, he said. He hadn't even fully recovered. Morgan came back with Gwen, Aoife, and Care soon after. The night had fully fallen. They came, mother, Tristan said to Gwen. Duncan pointed out where we were, and they came and tried to take Aaron by force. We stopped them. Aoife was looking at Aaron's wounds. Carden was cleaning Tristan's cut. As she asked no questions, Carden understood that Gwen had filled her in on Aaron's previous injuries. He should live, Aaron said. Aoife said. He needs to recover, though. I'm not sure that's possible, Gwen said. They were willing to come and take him by force. Two held off three, but next time they may bring many boats and carry him off. I'm thinking we have no real choice but to take him away and chance that he's strong enough to survive the journey. Off the island, Eve asked. Gwen nodded. My family could hide him, Eve offered. Carden shook his head. Whether we're here or not, if Aaron's not here when they return, they will search the entirety of the island. I'm sure of it. I think Gwen's right. Only if we get him away from the island completely might he be safe. And I don't know how angry they will be about the wounds they suffered tonight, but I don't want to chance any of our family being here when they return. The only question is, do we all leave right now and not plan on returning, or... Do you say Tristan and I take Aaron down the coast, find some place far away for him to recover, and then return? Aaron's told us that we're all in danger from protecting him, Gwen said. I always believed him, but I don't think I understood the depth of the danger. Now I do. We all must leave. Tonight. Everyone went silent. How can we help? Eve asked. We will take everything we can, Garden said, but some of the larger fishing equipment, particularly the nets, it won't fit in the boat with all of us. I hate to leave it here. If they have any spite in them, they might destroy them. I can have some of my family come and take anything away you can't carry, Eva said. We will come by just before dawn. Will you be gone by then? Long gone, Garden said. Hide it for a while, Gwen suggested. If we're not able to return, feel free to use it. I hope it won't come to that, Eva said. They all worked that night. The boat wasn't really all that large, and with three adults, two teens, and a child to load on, plus their belongings, it was going to be full. Even fuller, since Aaron would have to recline or simply lie down rather than sit. Sometime shortly after midnight, they pushed off. The sea was calm, and the tide was still fairly high, which made for an easy launch. Having discussed it beforehand, they made north. If they'd gone south, it would have been around the end of the island that led to town. Unlikely as it might be to meet a party of potentials heading their way, it was better to avoid all danger. Besides, even if they didn't meet anyone, a sighting from a distance on a night which was clear could give a hint as to their location. After all, they could not cross the sea. They could only go up or down the coast. There was a town which they figured they could reach in a few days. This would be when they'd have to put in, as they only had enough water for that journey. Food they were better off on. If they had to, they could put in at a stream and continue on. But three days of paddling and rowing should be enough to get to the next real city. They had some money, as did Aaron. They could scout around. 
They would have to put Aaron someplace comfortable to heal, nor had any illusions that he would get much better on an open boat. They were fortunate in that, though they had no sails, they could make good progress just from the current, which moved up the coast. They stayed within sight of the shoreline, not wanting to accidentally get away from land and then losing time getting back. Everyone but Kier and Aaron took turns at the oars. Everyone, when resting, kept an eye on their patient. Kier dropped a line off the back and fished, and even caught a few. After carefully checking them, Cardin even had the family eat some raw, though he kept it away from Aaron, who could not chance it. They had not brought salt in quantity, nor was there any way to sun-dry the meat properly. The second day, they saw a pod of dolphins. They jumped a few times near the little boat, but didn't stay long. They chose to take this as a good sign. The afternoon of the third day, arms aching, and even their very tanned skins burning from too much sun, they saw the new town roll into view. Too exhausted to try anything clever, and with Aaron mostly incoherent, they pulled into one of the large public docks, tied up, paid the dockkeeper, and went to find a room. They put Aaron on the bed and enjoyed the shade of the room. After a discussion, Gwen and Morgan went to buy groceries and also to look for any sign of attentions. If they went back to the island that night and sent out word by horse, they may have reached here ahead of us. Aaron, myself, and Tristan would be the best known of us to them, so it would be safest for you to go. Gwen had agreed with this, and they spent a good long time getting supplies and also taking a good long look around. It was getting late when they returned. Tristan had clearly become agitated, and Cardin suspected that Tristan thought they might have been lost or even abducted. No pretensions, Gwen said. We even asked around a bit. No one knows any or even knows about them. Good news, Cardin said. I was afraid they'd have a lot of power here as well. That gives us leeway. They watched their money closely. Aaron had them use his money as well once he'd begun to recover. They couldn't really keep up, but Cardin did as much fishing as he could, and they sold a fair bit on market days, though their ability to keep the fish fresh or properly preserve it was limited. Still, they stretched their money. Cardin also chatted up a woodworker, which gave him an idea. It was several weeks now, and Aaron was actually healing. The whole family was tired of being cooped up in the rented room. Cardin had started making a small sale for the boat, bit by bit, as his, at his woodworking friend's shop, paying what he could. It was now finished. It wasn't the most efficient sale ever made, but it worked. They had even put a small keel on the bottom of the hull. He tested it by sailing several short runs out to sea. I think, Cardin said, I should go back down the coast. The sail should let me do so, even against the current. Easily. It was never needed back home, but I'll be glad to have it here, and the journey back should be swift. Yes, Quinn said. Let us know how things are. The family got some food and water supplies together for Carden, and he went alone. He left early in the morning. The sail was a major improvement over the oars, and even though he was going against the current and the winds were only somewhat favorable, the trip that took three days the other direction took only one. He was glad of this, as he might have had to put ashore to sleep. As the sun went down and the sky darkened on a clear sky with light winds, he saw the island roll into view. He had thought through the day of how to handle it. He had already decided there were too many risks with landing at his home's dock. 
True, almost a month had passed, but they had gotten no news of the island or the town. They could be waiting there. On the far side of the island, on the lee side, there were several docks. The first one was small, but used by only one family, and that one connected to Aoife. There would be room. He would go in there soon, once it got a little darker. Until then, he turned around and went a little further out to sea to make sure he wouldn't be seen. The sky was purple when he turned back, but he could see well enough, and he knew the way well enough, to make it to the dock. When he got there, he saw that the dock was empty. He pulled in, turned the boat around so it was pointing out, and tied it with a knot that he could release with a single pull. He took the sail down and tied it down with a similar knot, but didn't put it completely away. If the wind really kicked up, he might lose the boat, but that didn't seem likely. And he could run back here if he if it started to. He turned and went to the nearby house. Rowena Ephesbrun and her family lived there. Or so it had been. But the windows were completely dark, as was the crack under the door. It was not an evening for a full island get-together, so far as he knew. He knocked on the door. No one answered. He pushed the door open with a simple, Hello? But there was no one inside. It was quite dark, but he took a look around as best he could. The furniture was all here, but there were indications that no one had been there for some time. Since they had fled the island? With a knot in his stomach, he left the East Brunn house and turned towards Aoife's own home, which wasn't far. When he approached, he saw that it was lit up. The building was long and low, rather similar to Carden and Gwen's home, but a good bit larger. For a moment, he felt better. He was about to go up and knock when an idea slid into his head. He backed off and scouted around to find a smallish rock. He got as far back as he could to still reasonably hit the door, right beside a handy hiding bush. Then he threw it. It smacked off the door, and even as he ducked behind the bush, he felt how embarrassed he would be when Aoife or one of her children or grandchildren opened the door. But it wasn't anyone from Aoife's family, or anyone he knew. Instead, a stranger opened the door, some man with a beard. He was wearing pretension clothing. Carden didn't move. Even his breath stopped. The man looked into the darkness, but hearing and seeing nothing eventually closed the door. He heard voices from within, no doubt asking what the man had found. Carden waited until he was sure the man wouldn't re-exit, then crept away. Night had fully fallen. There was a gibbous moon giving a bit of light, but mostly he made his way by knowing the paths. He went to other families' homes, but they were all similarly either dark or, after peering in a window or two, found that they too contained potentials. None of these people he knew. Where were all the islanders? He decided that he would have to see what happened at his own home. He walked carefully, but not slowly, along the familiar paths that brought him home. The house was dark. He didn't know if his house might be watched by the potentials, so he scouted all around. It was quiet. He entered his home. It seemed to be much as they had left it, if somewhat dusty and also damp there not having been a fire in the fireplace. There was nothing for him here. He left and went to Duncan's home. This was also uninhabited, but Carden decided to do some more searching. After making sure the windows were shuttered on the outside, he went in and found their flint and steel, which was on the mantel. He also found a candle and a bit of dry tinder. 
He lit the tinder with the flint and the candle from the tinder. Then he tossed the tinder in the fireplace. It was strange being in Duncan's house. Cardin had not thought much of Duncan, even before Gwen had decided to bed him. He didn't fully understand her decision. Nor did he understand why Duncan had two women living with him. Usually it was the other way around, when it wasn't like Gwen and himself were monogamous. Duncan had not struck him as particularly magnetic, but then he wasn't attracted to men. He looked around. Duncan and his two partners had no children as yet, unusual on the island. Perhaps Duncan wasn't able to give a woman a child, Cardin wondered. The main room seemed normal, but when Cardin stepped into the bedroom, he saw splashes of dried blood everywhere. There were no bodies, but the amount of blood made Cardin's breath stop. They must have been killed. Were Aoife and her family killed as well? Were the other families, all over the island, all dead? Blood was now rushing in Cardin's ears. Then he realized that he didn't only hear his pumping blood, he also heard people. He put out the candle and went for Duncan's back door. The voices and walking, quite audible over the surf, which wasn't as loud here at Duncan's home, seemed to be coming more from the front door, but they may be surrounding the house, Cardin thought. He opened the door and slipped out. He decided to make his way to the east side of the island, the lee side. Then he would only have to turn north along the inner shore and find his way back to the boat. He took a few steps, then heard a shout of alarm behind him. He went at a sprint, hoping he could see well enough to avoid tripping over any rocks or roots on the well-trodden but not even path. He slowed just slightly so he could raise his feet up more in an effort to keep from tripping. There were people behind him, but in the dark, he didn't bother to look behind him. He didn't know if they had seen him. Probably not, but they would get a good enough look at him if they caught up. They, there seemed to be a lot of them. He heard one or two shout, as though they had stumbled. It gave him hope, but he knew he was in trouble. It was a good mile to the north end of the island, and he wasn't even on the east side yet. That was a long time to outrun an entire group of people. A few might be as fast but have little wind. They would force Cardin to run at top speed. And then as Cardin got winded, he would have to stay ahead of those who were conserving their energy, but coming along behind. Worse, he didn't seem to be gaining any more of a lead. As he got to the highest part of the island, he knew he was going to have to try something desperate. He felt the start of a stitch in his side, and he knew if he tried to run all the way to his boat, he would be caught. He decided to go straight for the water. The current went up the coast towards his boat, both on the outer and lee sides of the island. If he got in the water with a head start and wasn't caught, he could ride the current back towards his boat. The thought gave him hope and strength, and he found, as he went on the gentle downhill slopes towards the east side, that he was getting a bit more of a lead on the men behind him. Cardin wasn't carrying anything besides his knife, which was tied by a thong to his simple breeches. He wasn't even wearing shoes. The bottom of his feet had become rock-hard over a lifetime of fishing and island living. He could go straight in the water. The water was also a lot calmer on this side. The waves were smaller. The water also got deep very quickly. It would be cold, but he knew he could stand it for some time. There was just a little bit of a glitter of the water in the distance now, spotted here and there through gaps between the trees when the path allowed it. He knew exactly where he should go in, where the water would let him run in for a while, then become very deep very quickly. 
Then the water was in front of him. He made for it and soon was splashing through it, less than knee high, as the small waves broke ahead of him. Then, as he knew it would, it got deep. He dove forward at the last bit of land his feet could touch. Behind him he heard yells as the first few men started splashing in the water. But Cardin was now swimming, and he had swum for all of his life. He heard some slashing around him. Some of the men were throwing weapons, or perhaps rocks, at him. But he wasn't hit. He waited for a particularly big wave to come and ducked under it. When he knew he must be hidden from view from the men behind him, he turned left towards the north and turned and towards his boat. He came up only occasionally to breathe, swimming underwater as much as he could. The waves and the buoyancy of the salt water made it difficult, but soon he was sure there was nothing else being thrown at him. He took a moment. He would be hard to spot in the water, in the dark from a distance. But looking back, he could see the group of men silhouetted against the lighter sand on the beach. They seemed to have been to have given up on catching him and were grouping up. Cardin knew that after they had checked the shore a bit up and down, they would start looking for a boat. He would have to get to his before they found it. He struck out. The current did help, and it was only perhaps twenty minutes before he saw the dock ahead of him. He made for shore and carefully looked for any sign of the potentials. But despite his care, as he walked out of the water only yards from the dock, he heard a cry behind him. It wasn't the entire group that had chased him earlier, but it was five potentions running at him. He took off for the dock and ran down it. He snagged the rope and tugged it, tugged it so the knot released, and jumped in the boat in a way he knew would also tend to push it away. The men came up behind. Four stopped, but one decided to go for it and jumped. He landed in the water, but his hand hooked the back of the boat. Cardin grabbed the paddle from its place near the bow and turned on the man. He was trying to pull himself in, but Cardin swatted the side of his head. Despite all he had seen, he didn't want to kill him, just make him let go. It worked. The man gave a yell, and the boat was free. Cardin pulled on the sail's knot and got the sail up. The boat was immediately moving swiftly, aided by both wind and sea currents. The dock slipped behind, and he glanced back to see the four men on the dock looking his way, and the fifth swimming back for land. He was exhausted, but he knew he couldn't stop for any reason. The little boat made swift progress and it was only morning when he pulled back into the dock at the new town. We must go, Cardin explained to Gwen and Aaron as soon as he got to their room. The whole of the island has been cleared out. I think most of them are dead. They will know that we have gone north. We must go further. We must take the sailboat and go far enough that they won't bother to follow. And they did. Gwen and Cardin settled down and resumed their fishing life. Aaron grieved for several years and then found himself a new wife. The children grew up and eventually had families of their own, of several different kinds. Gwen and Cardin were pleased, but they also missed their island and had no way of exacting justice for what happened. It was many years until their grandchildren saw potential again. They had been warned. And thank you for listening. If you have any comments or questions about this episode or previous episodes, cryptobiography at gmail.com or hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, or Mastodon. Words and music, copyright 2023, Brandon Starr. All rights reserved. Characters and events are fictional, fictionalized, or satirical.